0: It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw, the Executive Editor of the Express News Group, which publishes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com And I also should add Express Magazine, which came out this week. Uh, thank you for joining us. With me this week is my co-host Bill Sutton. He's the Managing Editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill.
1: Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody.
0: As always, great Great panel with us today. Uh, Carissa Katz, who is the managing editor for the East Hampton Star. Hey, Carissa.
2: Hey, Joe. Nice to see you. Good
0: Good to have you. Uh, Joe Workmeister, editor up at the uh, Times Review Media Group. Hey, Joe. Hey, good to be back. Always room for another Joe on the panel. Uh, And Beth Young, editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Hey, Joe. Good morning. So we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to cover a bunch of different topics, I think. Uh, And uh, let's start with... Uh, vaccine life. I think we're all starting to experience it now. And, uh, Carissa, I think you guys wrote about it this week in the start, uh, just that, you know, people are starting now to enter the phase of the pandemic where we are beginning to come. We're, we're sort of like the cicadas that are emerging (laughs) from the 17 years underground. We are finally starting to come out of it. And, uh, what did you find about how people are changing the way they live?
2: Well, so we had Jamie Buffolino go out and do a man on the street um, interviews with people. And uh, it was just, you know, I smiled a lot as I edited his story um, because people are feeling very hopeful and people who were cautious throughout the past year plus are, you know, putting, dipping their foot back in the water. And um one person said that um, they had been so careful that going to Stop and Shop felt like going to Saks Fifth Avenue. <laughs> and, uh, another one talked about having three dinner parties in one week because they finally could. Um, and so it was just, a, you know, it's, it's nice to have a, a feeling of hope. And I think that we're all probably seeing a bit of that as we go about our lives. And you know, I'm thankful that I've had my two vaccines and kind of ready to start going back to restaurants and just being, is, you know, seeing people again.
0: And is everybody on the panel here fully vaccinated at this point?
3: Yeah. Is it? yeah. I, I have my second shot, but still have to wait the two weeks for you're, you're f- in f- the, the fully vaxxed. Right. You're-
0: you're almost there, you know spring is yeah. all you know spring sort of brings that feeling anyway, you sort of get that feeling of rebirth, but boy, it's even bigger this year with uh with the vaccine. no question um, what are you guys doing? have you been able to to get out a little bit Beth have you uh started to explore the world again
4: i I hugged a friend without wearing a mask yesterday. it was really weird,
0: and I'm there never- nice it <laughs> And you're full of trepidation today. (laughs) Going to restaurants, Carissa, I think is is one of the really interesting things. It is something that people have been doing for some time now, but I think everybody's feeling a little bit better about it these days. Fair enough.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of people, you guys have a story about how the restaurants actually did all right um, in the off seasons and better than they expected. And I think a lot of people did continue to eat out and to support the restaurants, but there were people who, like myself, people who were hesitant to eat inside, felt like, why take the chance? Let me just get takeout. And, um, you know, personally, I'm so excited to go eat in a restaurant dining room
0: again. <laughs> So I've had the experience. Bill, have you been out to to eat? Yes, a,
1: a few times, and it's just felt wonderful. Like a couple of times at the at the diner just for for breakfast with a with a friend was great. And I went out um, last weekend to. I'm, I'm going to plug them because it was a great place, Ruggiero's um, restaurant in Now. Uh, in in, uh, the shops in in waiting river um really 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 nice place and you know what it just felt comfortable yeah everybody wears masks going in and out and stuff but it just it felt like a little bit of normal
0: um joe joe how about you you you're in the middle of the vaccination process does that change the way you uh are approaching you know what you're doing out there in the world
3: yeah i mean i mean on on um (laughs) Days it? It's Friday. On Wednesday, I went to the Mets game. So that was kind of the nice. big, big thing to go out. You know, I had to get, had to get a COVID test before that. And, uh, you know, so, you know, did you,
0: did you use the Excelsior pass just out of curiosity? I, w- that?
3: I wasn't sure if you had to be in the fully vaxxed period before you could set that up or not. So, so I haven't even tried looking into that yet, but, do, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Two
2: weeks out from your second right
3: so yeah i'm not sure if they were you know accepting that or not i would assume so but you know i just printed out my test result and showed it and it was good to go and you know it was it was was kind of a obviously unique kind of experience being in a stadium where it's ever it's so spread out and uh, obviously pretty empty compared to what it would normally be but um You know, it was it was definitely nice to just be out in the world and um, doing something like that again was uh, you know pretty cool. The game itself wasn't great, but, you know, that's 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 life as a Mets fan. I don't
0: I don't want to be the one to rain on the parade here. But do we need to talk about the fact that I, you know, in the back of my mind, there's that little worry that we are. I think I think with more vaccinations, uh, it's getting safer, but we are dropping our guard and every time i i look at the you know i look at the new york times every morning and they talk about suffolk county very high risk uh, we continue to be sort of running above the curve as far as as risk of spreading the disease out here and i i do worry a little bit that all of this dropping of our guard can lead to another spike is that just me or is that everybody else too
1: I think that worry is going to be with us for a while. I think it's just going to be a natural. Yeah, I think we still need to be careful. We still need to wear masks. We still need to do all that stuff. But even when the day comes, and I hope it comes soon where they say, "Okay, we've got this thing beaten, I think we're all still going to be worried and nervous. And, And and for a while, we're going to be a little bit shell shocked, aren't we? Yeah.
4: The variants are really yeah. Scary. What because last summer was was good. Mm-hmm. We thought it was over. And then the winter was as bad oh. as the spring again.
1: Look what happened look look what's happening in India right now. They thought they thought they had it beat, they thought it was done, they thought it was over, and now they've got no room in any of the hospitals. And um, you know, it's sad. A lot of people are, are dying over there with without any treatment at all. So yeah, we need to be careful.
3: And I think it's gonna be hard too, and once once we kind of come out of the restrictions, it's going to be, would be really hard, I think just to get people into that mindset of having to go back to any kind of restrictions, you know, if, if we do start seeing spikes, so, you know, hopefully it doesn't come to that point and, you know, everything kind of stays on the, you know, good trajectory uh trajectory um, you know yesterday the county executive was saying that the uh, positivity rate was below two percent for the prior 24 hours that was the first time we had gotten back under two percent in a long time so that was uh you know pretty good and you know as beth said you know, the numbers last summer actually were pretty good i mean remember we were kind of i think under 100 cases basically every day uh for a long stretch so you know when you consider what it was last summer now yet and all the vaccinated people you know hopefully this summer you know people are, uh, you know, or at least in a, in a sh- good enough shape that it's not going to cause a, a significant spike where you know we have to start you know really really going backwards and, and restrictions and stuff.
0: I think I mentioned this before. I read an article at one point along the way that this disease um, is very much about super spreaders, and that's why you get spikes. It doesn't take a lot of people uh, that have the virus and maybe don't even know it to go out and and if it's highly contagious, especially, Um, they can spread it pretty widely. And I think that's why you get some spikes. Carissa, I'm also wondering, the attention now is going to have to very quickly turn to the portion of people who have not gotten vaccinated. And I I think there is a large number of people who don't plan to get vaccinated. And that's going to be a hurdle we got to get over, because if that doesn't, if if we have a sizable number of non-vaccinated people, this thing isn't going to ever go away completely.
2: Yeah. And that's I think that's where the state is at at this point with its, you know, they dropped the rate, they dropped its universal eligibility now. But now but the, the the trick now is to get people to come in and get those shots that are hesitant to do it for whatever reason, if they're they just generally are vaccine hesitant. Um, but that's why they opened all of the state sites, and the state also encouraged the county and other providers to open all of their appointments on a walk-in basis. So, you know, for instance, the site um, close to us here at uh, Stony Brook Southampton campus um, is now walk-in because they said they they want to remove. You know, the the idea is to remove the barriers to going in and getting that shot. It's too hard to make an appointment on the phone, or too hard to make an appointment on the computer just go, just show up and then show up for your second one. And okay. um, and now with the availability again of the Johnson and Johnson um, single shot vaccine, I think um, I heard that uh, the CVS, in, both of the CVS um, stores in East Hampton finally had the vaccine and they had Johnson and Johnson. So people who say they just wanna get it over with and can do their research and feel comfortable getting that single dose can, can do it that way, but but that is the challenge now. You guys noticing a lot of people that you know are hesitant? Well, have a lot you?
4: of young people that I've talked to just really haven't thought it through because they didn't really think they were eligible and they like, it, it like wasn't the on their radar screen. And also they, there's a lot, I mean, you listen, a lot of people listen to what they're, they hear on YouTube and they have a lot of misconceptions about what the vaccine is. Mm-hmm. And You know, a five-minute conversation changes a lot of people's minds.
2: Yeah, and I think where people see other people getting it that they respect or who, and they see that people have gotten it, they haven't gotten, you know, really, really sick, then it will break down some of those hesitancies.
0: It's pretty remarkable the amount of misinformation that's out there. I mean, I I know (laughs) that this is the era of misinformation, but... um, you know, the, the, the bad information that's out there about vaccines really seems to miss the point that, that it, they've been overwhelmingly successful, that there just has not been, uh, much of a, much of a negative impact of that. But Joe, are you hearing the same thing? Are, are, are you hearing uh vaccine, uh, hesitancy out there?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely out there. I mean, I, hear it from some of my own family members you know that you know so it's like you, you know everybody's got to kind of sort of do the job to you know persuade people to uh um you know to to, to take it and, and why it's beneficial and it's definitely a team effort to uh to do that and and it's tough when you're kind of up against um you know uh, yeah, you, you have a large segment of people I think that are just naturally against vaccines in general. Before we even started talking about the COVID nineteen vaccine, so right off the bat, you're going to have a, a, you know people that just don't think vaccines are good. So you know, how do you persuade them in particular? And then other people, as you said, with misinformation, you know, they, you know, you hear one example of something, you um, know, somebody having a side effect, you're like, Oh, well, I, I don't want that. But, you know, you know, you have to look at it as the larger picture and, and the millions of doses that are being, um, that are being done. And, um, you know, I do wonder too with the, the pause that happened with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And you know, I think there's already seen some um, data where there's been more of a decline in, in, and people wanted to get the vaccine since that happened where that kind of pushed a more of a hesitancy, uh, and certain people. And even though now, you know, a week later that, you know, they, the pause was lifted and the severe blood clots that they were investigating, you know, hasn't really been found on a much wider scale than you know, the original few cases they found. They're still now that kind of extra hurdle was just thrown in there. And, and so I wonder how much of a, uh, long-term, you know. Uh, effect that'll have, and trying to get people back, uh, you know, into the groove of taking the vaccine. And as the governor stated, they were doing, I think, about 175,000 doses per day. Now it's already down to like 115,000. So it's pretty big, pretty big dip already. With we're not, you know, not even at 50 percent of the population's gotten uh, a, a single dose yet. Right,
2: and kids can't get it. I have kids. I have a t- t- ten-year-old and a twelve-year-old, and they can't get the vaccine. So I just think it's, you know, it's my job to try to sur- surround them with, you know, that's like barrier of safety and I'm getting it for them. And, um, and I think, you know, the people that I know who are, who have it, they're, they're also helping to pr- protect my kid and other kids who can't get, um, have that immunity. Luckily kids generally don't get as sick, but um but you just don't, you don't want to roll the dice.
0: Right. And I, I think it's at least worth pointing out too, that we started this show uh, at the beginning of the year. And a lot of the conversation then was about how terrible the vaccine rollout was. It really has improved. And, and I think that that's as much as we were critical at the time, um, I think that the state and the federal government both deserve a tip of the hat for how well, once the momentum started, I think that the rollout uh, a lot of the problems that we saw in the first month or two uh, have really gone away. And this has been a pretty terrific effort, Build, don't you think? I, I, think, I think they've really fixed a lot of the problems. And I think people who want to get a shot now, it's its now it's much easier, but it really became much easier about a month, a month and a half ago. Uh, and, and I think that sped the process along.
1: Well, it did. But you have to remember that there was that, you know, huge bottleneck in, in that. Everybody who wanted to to get the vaccine when it first rolled out, there were so many millions of people and, and only so many vaccines and only so much supply. It wasn't just a matter of I mean, there were certainly issues with the websites and, and the, you know, and the call-in line and, and all that, but a lot of that was just all these people rushing trying to get to get an appointment all at the same time. And I think we kind of preached patience a little bit at, at that point. And I think people who who were patient have now you know, been able to get vaccinated. The fact that you can just walk into these places now and and get a vaccine is is amazing, and, and 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 is a testament to how they've continued to you know to to push and 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 to do a good job in getting the vaccines out. The ones that they've had. Um, I, my, I, my, I, I, what I can't understand, I read something the other day that, that there are people that got their first shots and don't want to get the second shot and feel that they're protected by the first shot. And that just, that amazes me. And I'm not sure I understand why you would get the first one at all and not want to get the, get the second one. That's just odd.
3: Yeah. I think that's kind of a new wrinkle that, that I don't think really you know, the health officials were sort of uh, preparing for was that people getting that first shot and then just being like, you know what? Eh, I think I'm just good. I'm not going to risk the second shot. It's kind of
0: crazy. It's not something to to, to, be in favor of, but it's at least worth noting that one shot does provide at least some protection and that's probably better than none. And I can tell you on a personal level, I know Bill and I, had a conversation with a mutual friend just this week who was planning to get the vaccine, but had some hesitation. So it's, it's an effort to to try and um, combat the misinformation it's out there and you kind of have to do it on a personal basis and a a one-on-one basis and try and tell people.
1: And and, and even my brother, I've talked a couple of times on the radio show about him and his hesitancy and he didn't want to get the vaccine necessarily because he's kind of a a, a tinfoil hat kind of guy and was, was reading a lot of stuff. He, you know, he'll admit that. Yes, um, yes. But, but but, he he went and he had a, a doctor's appointment and he talked to the doctor and the doctor kind of helped reassure him. And he hasn't gotten the shot yet, but he has an appointment to go get a, a Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I'm really thrilled for him and happy for him. His girlfriend, of course, however, is still reluctant and probably will not get the shot. So uh, it just goes to- goes I to,
2: think that points to the best. In the best uh, advice you can give to people who are hesitant is that they should talk with their own um, trusted healthcare provider about their hesitancy, about the shot itself. And um, they have a relationship with that person and that person understands their health concerns. And that might be the best way for them to overcome those concerns is to to go to that
4: trusted person. A lot of doctors are are beginning to be able to offer the shot as well. -hmm. Yeah, that helps a
1: lot. When when you can go in for a regular checkup and, and get the shot, I think a lot of people will, at that point, probably do it if they hadn't done it before. Absolutely.
0: This is Behind the Headlines on wliw I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton, the managing editor of the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star, Joe Werkmeister from the Times Review Media Group, and Beth Young from the East End Beacon. So let's turn to some a uh, little more Uh, local issues. Uh, One of them, it's really more of a regional issue. It's actually wider than that, but in this case, regional. Um, Carissa, you wrote this week about the fact that a a list came out um, earlier this month of uh, Roman Catholic priests who um, had been involved in well, why don't you tell me that they, they were involved in, in legal actions and, and it was actually a legal firm that finally released the names of the priests involved because the Diocese of Rockville Center wouldn't do that, correct?
2: Well, the diocese had not previously released a full list of all of the what what are referred to as the credibly accused priests. Um, but what they did earlier this month for the first time um, as part of their bankruptcy proceeding. So. Um, because the,
0: dio- the diocese. diocese
2: did mm-hmm. so, um, and and a law firm who's representing some of the victims alerted people to the fact that that list had been released. Um, but they, the diocese, is facing over 200 um, child victim act lawsuits um, related to um, abuse by priests, and it, the child victim act for people who. Don't aren't familiar with it, it allows, it um, temporarily eliminates the statute of limitations on filing um, abuse claims. So people have until August of this year to do so. And it can go back as far as, as far as the, you know, as long ago as it happened. Um, and what
0: what I that's a, that's a change too, right Carissa? they they changed the law to to allow there was a statute of limitations at one point, but the state changed the law to to open it up to more cases. yeah
2: to open it up temporarily because so many people had been silent for so long and and um and and never had justice or never, you know, Never told anybody about things that happened to them as children that were really painful experiences, and um,
1: and, so and the, that and that prompted the, the bankruptcy filing by the church, right as all, the, all, all these new things, cases yeah. were coming in as, as it was relaxed.
2: Yeah, so they released this list as, as part of that proceeding, and um, the list has a hundred the names of 101 um priests and deacons who had been um, credibly accused. Um, in some cases um, they had settled and that those were the names that are new as where they, in cases where they had settled. Um, in some cases um, they had already um, paid out um, in another way or act, legal action had already been taken, but, but this included sort of everyone. And um, on that 101 names, I you know, we're focused here the star focuses on on the South Fork and looked at all of those names and found that 11 11 of them had at one point served somewhere on the South Fork, um, from Villa Maria to Sacred Hearts in Southampton, most holy Trinity in East Hampton, St. Therese in Montauk, um, St. Andrews in Sag Harbor,
0: saint Rosalie's in hampton bays was was one of the places yeah. some of this is not new correct we've we've known some of the names from past reporting, but there are some yeah. new names on the list
2: yeah and it for me it was it was a little hard to determine for sure which names were new um but certainly from past reporting we know about some of it and some of the some of the um priests who were on that list had already been prosecuted um some of them you know one of them at least was already you know a level three sex offender um so so it's not all new information but sort of seeing it all together and having it include the ones where the the names had never come out before um was illuminating um to
0: say the least i wonder what happens from here now because um even though this is not a new issue and it's obviously been something that's been in headlines for the last decade or so. Um, Seeing those names in the local community is going to, is going to create some, some shock effect, I think. Um, And I wonder what's going to happen. Beth?
4: Absolutely. Um, I mean, we, we think of this subject as, you know, something we've seen in movies um, and it's everywhere. It's, uh, and the, the more, It's exposed locally. I think the uh, more comfortable victims will be talking and um, and that's really the most important thing right now is um, that victims are heard and believed.
0: And I wonder uh, some of the policies that the the diocese. had in place. And I think it's it's true throughout the Catholic Church during this time when it's coming under criticism had to do with moving priests around rather than taking them out of service. And I, and I think that we see that in some of the 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 names that came out this week that they were moved around a lot and some of them ended up on the South Fork after allegations were made elsewhere, I think. So so that's a big part of this too, right, Teresa?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what just, you're looking at the dates where these different priests served and then comparing it to where um, the accusations surfaced, you do see that often they were transferred to other parishes for short periods of time or maybe even for longer periods of time after Um, accusations had already been made known to the diocese in some cases. Um, Then, you know, you just see like a priest arrives at most Holy Trinity after really serious accusations somewhere else. And I think that um, the the local connection that had already been uh, reported where two of the priests who served at St. Andrews or who who were assigned to St. Andrew in Sag Harbor were among the top five accused, um, on the whole list. Wow. And, uh, and it, you know, and, and they didn't, when they left St. Andrew, they didn't leave the priesthood. They went on to, they went on to serve in a different parish. And sometimes it was a series of parishes and, um, that's, that's the part that is probably the most unconscionable of what happened is that, uh, even when even when abuse became you know was alleged, it, they were allowed to continue interacting and um, going about their duties and coming in contact with children and putting children at risk. Um, so
0: you know, part of what we do with behind the headlines is the whole idea is to talk about um, the next level down after you know beyond the, the what what we're reporting in the papers and on our websites. And I, I wonder if there's going to be a reaction from some people out there who say, why dredge this up? Why bring it up again? It was years ago. Why put these names in the paper again and just renew that feeling of pain uh, and and uh, just raise it all again? What, what what If someone were to call or to write a letter to the editor and make that point, What what's the answer that you'd give them?
2: Well, I would say a few things. One of them is that the priests who abused their stations um, and used used their role to abuse children, they tarnish the entire institution. And, and it's not fair to all of the, the good people of faith out there to, to have that be the impression that people are left with of the Catholic church. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is that for the, people who were victims, this, this isn't over and done with. There may be some people who say, I want to put it behind me. I don't want to talk about this anymore. But, but for other people, they need to, as Beth said, they need, they need to be heard and they deserve to be heard. And there are, there are probably more people still who will read about these priests and say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I wasn't the only one. Maybe they never told anybody. Maybe they never wanted to admit it because the priest was so well loved. And uh, and if they see the name, they might say, well, i it validates their experience and allows them to to to
4: seek some way of moving past that. Yeah, there's also a level. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Beth. A lot of victims blame themselves for what happened.
0: Sure. Absolutely. That yeah.
4: Reinforcement.
0: And Joe, I want to say, you know, there's also a level of accountability here, right? I mean, that's part of what uh, a newspaper is about is is just marking history and not letting it get into the shadows that that it's about uh, making sure that there's accountability for for people's actions.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, we look at it as okay. enough times gone by where everyone can just, you know, forget it ever happened. Like, you know, it's. You know i still don't know that we even have all the names that uh, the, uh, that are you know, of people that have been you know credibly accused you know the in our story we had um uh, talked to uh, the attorney who was um you know you know the, uh, the the guy who was portrayed in spotlight who's been behind this since the early 2000s and, and getting this all going and he was saying that you know there are still prominent names that aren't on this um uh, one being um uh, bishop mcgann who was um accused two years ago we had done some reporting on that um a couple of women who are now i think in their 60s um brought up accusations and and, you know there's uh some violence there related to that and you know that his name wasn't on this list so he's you know his point was you know yeah this we've we have some this was good but you know there's still more out there and some of these prominent names and and the you know the diocese potentially you know a, a priest who was accused once you know they may look the other way on that one um so i think there's still more to learn here so uh, you know that's uh, important that, you know we keep keep looking and when and when you know when names come up um, you know it serves to be
0: out there it's an uncomfortable story to read, and it's even more uncomfortable to report in some cases, but it's important that we do that, no question. Behind the headlines, uh, this is WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Schaub with my co-host Bill Sutton. Uh, with us, Carissa Katz, Joe Workmeister, and Beth Young on the panel. So, um, Beth there was some burning going on in the Pine Barrens this week. And I think you were, you're on top of that. I want to hear more about this. What, what uh, if we noticed some smoke coming from the Pine Barrens this week, we shouldn't panic. That's what you're telling me. We're not uh, going to
1: talk about see. legalized cannabis again. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> I was
0: trying to come up with a punchline there. <laughs> Thank
4: you. Um, yeah. Uh, well, since the sunrise wildfires back in that's uh, 95, Uh, there's been some pretty aggressive management of fire in the Pine Barrens to keep a a blaze from getting out of control like that again, Um, particularly since there's been more development in the Pine Barrens. A lot of homes are built in these areas now. Um, But the problem with aggressively uh, fighting fires is then a whole bunch of dead fuel burns up and builds up in the woods and uh, makes the possibility of a catastrophic wildfire even more... um, Likely in the future, and I I know there was a lot of derision when um, they were talking about raking the forests out west. But that is literally one of the things you do to try and um, to try and uh, bring down the fuel load in the in the um, in the forest. Also, burning uh, prescribed burns in the fire in the pine barrens um, is something that hasn't been done historically, and there's been a lot of resistance to it on Long Island because of all the communities, it's it's not like you're out in the middle of nowhere and it doesn't necessarily impact houses. And really what you're trying to do when you're doing prescribed fire is to protect the houses. So it has to be done near where people live. So it can only be done on, under very specific conditions. Um, it requires a lot of planning. Uh, the DEC has been working on trying to figure out how to make this happen for at least a decade now. So they did the first three acre block in the demonstration forest in Rocky Point on April 20th, and they're gonna be um, burning, I believe, a a couple more blocks over the next couple months just to see how how it goes there. And if it goes well there, they're hoping to bring that to more areas within the Pine Barrens. Uh, It also, they're also trying to see how this uh, works for management of the pine beetle.
0: Uh,
4: I know is a problem throughout the region. Is it still a big problem out in East Hampton, Carissa?
2: Um, I definitely have noticed more stands of trees that seem to have gone and I don't you know i have, we haven't had anything in the paper about it recently, but just kind of looking around as I drive about it's uh, it's clear that there's still there's it's still an issue.
0: yeah the damage have been done.
1: And, and that yeah. and the debris from the pine beetles not not in the in the pine barrens but but that creates uh, a fire hazard as well and I know that we've had some some calls about some of the trees along Sunrise highway and um, you know and even even other spots
0: if I remember the dead trees uh, yeah absolutely and if I remember correctly Beth I, I remember reading that fire is actually part of the life cycle of the pine barrens. right oh, they, they awesome. actually reproduce. Um, fire helps them to reproduce.
4: The uh, the cones don't open unless they hit a certain temperature, so they can't. The, no new trees will come unless there is fire.
0: So it's really fascinating that this damaging um, element is also part of the regenerative process for the pine barrens. So there's a. Uh, I just find that fascinating. But but you're right. It's been you know you would think since the wildfires in '95. There might have been a more aggressive attempt to manage uh, the pine barrens, but that really hasn't been the case they've been studying it this whole time. Right. So this is sort of a big deal that they've begun the process of these controlled burns.
4: Yeah. Controlled burns have been very controversial. So so
1: what's the controversy? People, people nervous that a controlled burn could get out of control and spread to houses and.
4: Uh, And smoke, especially if it's done near a residential area, You, you really need very specific conditions. There also aren't a lot of trained people who can do it on Long Island. You know, most of the the people who've been through the wildland firefighting training are really working out west and needed out west. Um, Beth,
2: do they, does the DEC do that elsewhere
4: in the state? They do. Actually, um, Long Island is the only area where it really hasn't been done. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and
0: I would guess that's because of the development, right The intense development makes yeah. it different.
4: There's actually an area up by Albany where they've been studying it extensively. Um, but the DEC does do the PAC qualification test for wildland firefighters on Long Island, which is something that it's hard to get tested on that on Long Island. So if anybody and they run and um the Wildfire Incident Management Academy at BNL is every fall, so you can get trained there at Brookhaven Lab. Uh, like the last two weeks in October. And you can take that certification anywhere in the country if anybody out there w- wants
0: to make that a career. You so I wonder, the control burns, do they offer training opportunities then for local firefighters too? Is that kind of a side benefit?
4: You really need to have this training that they offer at the Wildfire Academy. You,
0: you have, to to have to have that certification. You know, after the
4: sunrise wildfires. Gotcha. need to train people on this.
0: That's interesting stuff yeah Joe Arkmeister, um up your way I know there's an issue too with an organization called cast that uh, has a new home and that's been a big story for you
3: yeah well uh, community action uh, south Old town uh, organization's been around for for a long time and uh, they do a lot of great work in South Old town um, providing meals for um, people in need and um, and during At the start of the pandemic, uh, you know, the work really, uh, went into overdrive, uh, with so many people, um, needing some assistance and, uh, you know, they were kind of really on the, that, that front lines, um. I know their uh, uh executive director got COVID early on you know before mm. you know as, as um you know before we kind of really knew about all the mess and, and all those guidelines kind of went into place and um th- you know they were doing a lot of uh great work and so they've been trying to uh expand their um uh their facilities and get some more space and they had been looking uh in greenport um and, and sort of a, a little bit of a residential area kind of in 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 the village and um kind of yeah (laughs) right on main street yeah basically but um some where they were looking for uh got got some um uh some negative reaction from some neighbors uh you know kind of didn't want the traffic coming in that maybe created with um them being there and uh uh, they, they eventually backed out of that and um started looking elsewhere. And, uh, last week they announced that they were going to go into, uh, purchase, um, what is the former, uh, South old opera house, opera house, which is a former church and, um, and, and, and move forward there. And, uh, so, you know, pretty, pretty, they were pretty, pretty excited about that. And, um, it's going to be, I think they said about $2.8 million would be the uh, purchase price. So, wow. Yeah, actually
4: the refunder for that. They don't have it in in the bank
3: yet. Right, right. So it's still uh, uh you know some work to be done to uh you know to make it all happen, but um you know, the, you know they're hopeful that um, you know, that could be a new home and um, you know hopefully that works out for them and and you know I don't think the the demand is going to go away anytime too soon. Um you know with people who are you know struggling you know, need need food supplies um, you know so
0: you know i find uh, that interesting this region is immensely generous when it comes to those organizations and there's a lot of them uh, that get plenty of support but it's it's less generous when it's time to cite those facilities places. And it's also, as you note, that the organizations have the added challenge of having to deal with the East End real estate market to even find a home, which just adds a layer of difficulty to that, that threatens the survival of a, lot, of a lot of these organizations, I would think.
4: Yeah, I, I was surprised with talking to um, the executive director of CAS last week. Um, historically, they've been in Greenport for like 55 years and most of the people who've used their services has, have lived in Greenport for all this time. They asked them where they live, and a lot of people walked there. And Greenport has gentrified so quickly in the last four or five years. She was telling me that most of the people who actually use the services now actually live further west in South Old or other like less densely populated areas of South Old Town, because real estate in Greenport is through the roof. Um, so that's just a change that's happened. But another thing, this is a really big space that has a performance hall that used to be the sanctuary of the church. And the North Fork really does not have, like on the South Fork, you get used to, you have you have the Southern Cultural Center, all these places have Steinway Grand Pianos, whatever. Um, the North Fork has nothing like that. So they're really trying to provide cultural, um, things that are very inclusive of people who don't have a lot of means. And I think that's just so vital because we often forget how much of a need for having culture in their life that people in need still have. And, um, and I think that's something that Kathy at Cast is really on top of, and it's going to be great for everybody.
0: So, uh, Joe, what's Cast doing in the meantime while they uh, have they got a they've got a temporary location
3: for the for the time being uh yeah I believe they will operate out of where they've you know been for you know a while now um you know even before the pandemic started they had just unveiled this new uh mobile uh, pantry that they had got so they had this uh, vehicle that they can kind of load up and take uh, food you know to people um, that you know maybe can't get to them um you know as you know as bet said you know they're kind of um Dealing with people, you know, more spread out throughout the town than maybe they did in the past where it was easier for people to just kind of go to them where they found that it was, you know, uh, they needed more, they needed to get to the people themselves. So that's, um, what their uh, mobile pantry was, um, set up to do. And, um, you know, I'm not sure how much, uh, that's benefited during the pandemic or, you know, because everything, you know, it's obviously pretty tough with uh, protocols to, um, you know, being, being that's tight spaces. So, um,
4: in their backyard at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the mobile pantry is going to be at Holy Trinity church on main street in Greenport, which is actually like a couple blocks up the street from the church they wanted to buy.
0: Which <laughs> Great. So that works. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> the number
1: of people that they've been serving in during the pandemic must have just skyrocketed too, like every other pantry on, you know, on the country and on Long Island.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely. was going up and up. And, you know, I think around last summer, I remember checking in, you know, you kind of thought maybe it was going to start to like level off or come back down and it, it really hadn't and kind of just uh, kept going up. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how the numbers panned out through the winter. Um, uh, or, or more recently, but um, yeah.
0: wonder if there's a silver lining with the arrival of summer that we might see some money flowing again and, and people being, uh, going back to work again, and maybe the needs from the food pantries. I mean, the food pantries operate year round for a reason. Uh, there are people in need all of the time, uh, but but the, the intensive need that we've seen during the pandemic, maybe the, the revival of the local economy might take the edge off that a little bit. Let's let's hope so. Fingers crossed. This is Behind the Headlines uh, on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Our panelists today, Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star, Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group, and Beth Young from the East End Beacon. Uh, so, Carissa, we talked last week a little bit about Sag Harbor, but Sag Harbor, I think is going to be a topic of conversation for some time uh, because uh, there was a meeting this past week, I believe it was on Friday, an outdoor gathering uh, to give people a chance to talk about some of the developments that are going on in Sag Harbor right now and to provide some feedback to Sag Harbor Village officials. And then there's another big meeting coming up uh, related directly to the Bay Street Theater proposal. You want to bring us up to speed on all that?
2: Um, to the extent that I'm able to. Um, <laughs> so the meeting last Friday was um, about Sag Harbor's uh, proposed waterfront development zone. And um, but of course, Bay Street and its plans are a really big part of that because it would all be within that zone. Um, so it, it, that meeting provided the opportunity for a lot of people to weigh in on what they
0: thought about Bay Street's plans. And but, but Bay Street was not part of that meeting.
2: Bay Street was not part to that meeting and it is doing its own community meeting, excuse me, tomorrow. Um, So people who are interested and want to talk to some of the Bay Street representatives directly should uh, should try to get over to that meeting in Sag Harbor.
1: That's happening
0: Saturday. Saturday, Yeah. Yeah.
4: Also, uh, you can live stream it as well. Right. That's
0: on Saturday. So if you're listening on Saturday, you still have time to do that. Uh, you can uh, seek out those details. What's, but this is—I mean—what we're really talking about is a potential transformation of of Sag Harbor. I mean, it, this yeah. this really um, Sag Harbor is really on the cusp of something here, one way or the other. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years. And the Bay Street Theater project is is a linchpin for that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just think about—you know—what they've proposed is really kind of a remaking of that of that corner of Sag Harbor, um, whole new look, as you go over the bridge to North Haven, a whole new look from the water back into the village, that, that corner. Um, so it's, uh, you know, that will significantly change people's experience of the village, I think. Um, and one way or another, they're going to do something. They bought the building, the businesses are leaving and, uh, and so what what exactly is that going to be? One of the things that I haven't seen, and I think it's because they haven't specifically said this, is what exactly is the size of this building? We've seen the pictures, and you have to be a trained architect to know based on the pictures, what does that mean for the footprint of the building?
0: Um, We've seen artist renderings, basically, of yes. broad sketches. It's we haven't reached the point yet where they've proposed anything specific, but it's basically just uh, an idea at the moment. But we haven't heard any specifics about. But it is a big project that they're proposing. the The theater wants a complex, basically, yeah. and. Beth, I know that Sag Harbor is near and dear to your heart. How close yeah. are you keeping an eye on this site? I mean, what Bay Street has in mind is really remaking, as as Carissa said, that entire corner.
4: Well, the the, the building that's there now is huge. I mean, I don't know how many businesses. I think there's like 13 businesses. I could be wrong about the number. But, um, I mean, it's lot line to lot line on that particular lot. So anything that replaced it really isn't. I can't see how its footprint would be bigger. It's definitely going to be taller because they need room for the, the uh, fly loft above the
0: stage and to do whatever you need to do for for rigging a show. Um, this is the, it's an important point to make that Bay Street has been in leased space on yeah. Long Wharf for years and years and years, but that lease space really is kind of not completely conducive to putting on live theater. That they really want a space that's designed specifically to do live theater in, in a bigger way.
4: Yeah, definitely. And and I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a little outside the loop as far as the internal goings on in Sag Harbor. I don't know if there's any tension, you know, with with the cinema coming online. I'm sure there's competition for donors.
0: Oh, there's tension in the village right now. Yeah. I think that's oh, fair to yeah. say. Um, yeah.
4: No, there's competition it, it, for donors between the cinema revitalization and this.
0: Well, uh, I think that it's interesting because the Bay Street folks have said at least once, hey, the village has been so accommodating to the cinema, and yet yeah. you're giving us such a hard time. And, and I think that's that's indicative, I think, of some some stress that's going on there. There is some tension.
4: Well, I mean, the cinema was rebuilding something that um, was destroyed. So that's an entirely different. And, and
1: was pretty story. iconic, too.
4: Yeah. This is, I mean, nobody likes change until it happens and then they forget it happened. So, well,
0: I yeah. think you, you touched on it, though, too, that, that, Carissa, this, the one of the big things is this is going to displace a whole lot of businesses who have to find new locations in the village, which is a very difficult thing to do in Sag Harbor Village. There's not a lot of room. And it's happening at a time when the village is looking at its waterfront district and trying to decide how to manage businesses that are going to go into its waterfront district. So it's it's all sort of, um, there, there's sort of an avalanche effect happening here. It's all happening at once in, in a really big way.
2: Yeah, it's the converging of what Bay Street has planned, which is very big, and what the village is is looking at in terms of its waterfront, which is also really big. Um, and if ever, if ever there was a situation that points to why a, the village wants to get a handle on things, it, it is Bay Street because of how much change it would bring. Um, I'm not saying that I don't like the look of the plans. I think there are a lot of different opinions about it. When I just look at those drawings, I say, wow, that, well, that looks pretty cool. But, like, <laughs> it has the potential to be really great, but, but there is a lot of hesitancy in the village. I mean, clearly there are a lot of people who are opposed to it and also seem to be kind of opposed to the, the methods by which Friends of Bay Street are, are um, going about um, expanding the holdings and um, achieving their vision.
0: Bill, the two sides had a, a phone campaign uh, to village hall, and basically it turned out to be a wash, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, 50-50, I guess I, I think though that um, from from what I from what I heard, a lot of the the pro responses were were pretty much canned, were you know canned responses. It was kind of the you know the same thing, and and the you know on the other side, I think you know, as as Carissa said, there's just there's a lot of questions that people feel haven't been answered. And, you know, and a lot of rumors swirling around the village. And and I think people just want the village to get a handle on that um, you know, moving forward.
0: I think this weekend's Bay Street conversation is going to be an interesting one, and it could be a spicy one, too. So uh, that's something we're working on for the upcoming week uh probably uh at least several of us are uh but let's talk about some of the other stories we're working on right now looking ahead to the coming week uh joe mark Mer- from the uh, times review media group what are you guys working on this week
3: oh you know we had some new new uh information coming out um I'm sure some people would be excited about in the racing world. Um, we, we had done a story a few weeks back about a proposal over at uh, the EpCal um, runways for a uh, multi-series uh, drag racing event that somebody had pitched. And um, uh, we found out yesterday about a, a different uh, uh, proposal um, that would be a two-day event in June uh, from someone else who was also looking to do uh, kind of a... a Amateur uh, drag race and event where people could sign up, bring their cars, and, and uh, they would set up three uh, tracks um, on the runways uh, an eighth mile, quarter mile, and a half mile uh, race. And uh, it would be a two day event, um, uh, $15 admission for people to go. And um, it, get, it seems to get seems to have some support uh, support from uh, the town board. Um, there's a special uh, event uh, application uh, being reviewed now, and basically, you know, they can kind of dot the eyes across the T's. or you know, dot,
0: racing dot, has right. a yeah. r- racing has a long history. Yeah. And
3: no yeah, and so yeah, that that facility at Epcal's been a place where, you know, people have wanted uh racing there for a long time and been trying to make a push for it. And I don't know that we'll ever see, you know, that become any kind of permanent uh racing facility, but um these kind of uh pop up uh um events uh that could be could be the um way that uh we see it out here and um uh there We'll so watch we'll for that story. Yeah.
0: yeah, good story, Beth. What are you working on?
4: Yeah, it's, it's let's uh, let's put it at the East Hampton Airport. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there you go. Make all you guys happy. <laughs> um, Don't cross the streams, Ray. We, we that's a whole different that's a whole different conversation. <laughs>
4: oh my god, um uh, Bay Street's the big thing I'm working on.
0: Um, and it's just going to, this weekend's going to be a big conversation, no question. I,
4: I think the, the big thing that struck me about that meeting last week was when Louis Grignon, who owns the Sag Harbor Yard, got up and talked, and he wanted to talk about what he, about his, um, he's got the only remaining working waterfront business on the, on the waterfront in Sag Harbor. And he's like, you know, you guys are trying to push me out too. And when that's gone,
0: what's left of what Sag Harbor was. Yeah. He should have a big role in that conversation about the waterfront. No question. Yeah. Um, Carissa, uh, 30 seconds or so. What are you, what are you working on for the coming week at the East Hampton star?
2: Same thing uh, for us. Bay street will be a big part of our coverage this week. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, kind of looking around at the businesses that are opening and 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 how they're doing and um, and the situation with help and the need for help i think other people have covered that before too we're going to take a look at that um, those are those are two that are in the works
0: I think Sidecarver is going to be on our minds quite a bit for the for the coming few months and maybe much, much longer. So I want to thank uh, Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star, Beth Young from the East End Beacon and Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group. And of course, my co-host, Bill Sutton. I'm Joe Shaw. We are from the Express News Group. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Headlines. Thank you, guys. We'll see you all uh, next week.